This is Nicole Murphy. This is Rachel Emanuel. Hi, this is John Cohen. Hey, everyone. This is Glenn Jung from Bright Light News. This is Drew Weatherhead. This is Tarek Elnega. This is Ed Dowd, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Friday. Uh, before we get on to today's show, let's get to today's episode sponsors. First, we got Ignite Distribution out of Wainwright, Alberta. That changed Stafford and his group there. They can supply automotive, industrial safety, welding uh, parts, and they also have on-site inventory management. So if you want to make sure you never run out of what you need to help keep your business running, look to Ignite Distribution. You can give them a call, 780-842-3433. You know, when it comes to taxes, starting a business, uh, dealing with the ins and outs, the paperwork, the numbers, uh, I, y- you need an accountant. And I found, I don't know if I stumbled into it or wh- wh- how Kristen, uh, you know, found, we found our way into working with McGowan professional chartered accountants, but either way, she's been fantastic. She's been in the financial industry since 2009 with her education and experience in this field. She's been focused on helping small, medium sized businesses with a wide range of assistance, mainly in agriculture, retail, not-for-profit oil and gas sectors. And of course, uh, they offer accounting, bookkeeping, business consulting and training, financial planning and tax planning. And they do it with a smile on their face. So if that uh, sounds like something you need, visit mcgowancpa.ca. And Rectech Power Products, they've been committed to the power sports industry uh, for over 20 years. They offer a full lineup, Can-Am, Ski-Doo, Sea-Doo, Spider, Mercury, Evanhood, Mahindra, Roxer. I know everybody's rolling out to the lakes now, and I just think, you know, huh, maybe you need a, a new toy. Maybe you get a trade in a toy. Who knows? Go take a look at their showroom. There's a, there's a lot there. Go visit Mr. Ryan. Go uh, give him a talk and see what the, they can do for you. If you're looking to see exactly what they're working with, go to rectechpowerproducts.com. Remember, they're open Monday through Saturday with a full... Uh, parts department to help you get through any, you know, maintenance or if you get some uh, upgrades. Now, let's get on to the tail of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. He did comedy theater for 13 years. Now he's a documentary filmmaker. I'm talking about Simon Essler. So buckle up. Here we go. This is Simon Essler, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Okay, welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today I'm joined by Simon Essler. So first off, sir, thanks for uh, hopping on. Yeah, pleasure to be here. You know, it's it's funny. I uh, uh, you always wonder. We were supposed to do this a, a couple of weeks ago. I feel like now, and um, you know, and as schedules and and family life and everything else happens, this happens to me all the time. It seems like in this chair, whether it's me or the guest, it, it doesn't work out that day. And I I go on when it, when it happens. I bet it was meant to happen on the day. You know, uh, when it comes. Uh, so I don't try to fight that too much because uh, you know usually it works out for the best. So here we sit, uh, you know, a, a couple weeks later. I'm excited to have you on. Um, I got shared uh, a bit of your story uh, by one of the listeners, and then of course I watched your doc- uh, documentary, which I got to be honest was a was a tough watch. Um, but in saying that, uh, some of the the best things out there right now are tough watches. Um, but before we get into all of that, maybe we could just start with a bit about Simon. Give your background wherever you want to lead us, and and we'll start there. Sure, sure. Um... Well, uh, I, uh, I'm 
an actor in many ways. That's a lot of what I, I started with. So I majored in theater uh, here in Toronto. Uh, so I was doing comedy theater in Toronto for about 13 years. And uh, when the lockdowns hit, uh, that creative outlet for me got squashed. And I ended up having to adapt. Now, uh, around the same time, uh, I had been working really in the ufology community. Um, I have had some pretty exper interesting experiences throughout my life, so I got very naturally led. Hmm? You have a question? What did you say? UF ufology. Oh, yes. yes. Like UFOs? Yes, yes. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, boys and girls, buckle up. Here we go. Okay, <laughs> ufology. So that was the space that I was in for years. Um, like I said, I had naturally been led there just from experiences I had had. Wait, wait, I, 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 I got to know. You know, sure. here, here we go, boys and girls. Buckle up because Sean's in a mood this morning. When you say ufology and you say experiences, you got to yeah. tell you can't you can't just you can't just glaze over that. It's yeah. like me saying I won the Stanley Cup or something. It's like oh, I, won, I once upon a time I won this thing called the Stanley Cup, and it's like what? what uh, can you can you back up there? Sure. So when when you're talking about UFOs, uh, what experiences have you had? A lot. Uh, let me touch on a few. Um, I grew up going to a family cottage in Muskoka, uh, so just a couple hours north of Toronto. And uh, growing up, I saw a lot of things in the sky there. Uh, probably the most notable things would be, uh, th you know, lights that looked like shooting stars. So they were moving at the speed of shooting stars, but then they would do 90 degree turns in the sky. Uh, and I would see that over and over again. Uh, there was another time when I saw a large purple spiral open up in the sky. I was laying there. I was about 11 years old, laying in the snow in the middle of the winter, just looking up at the night sky. And this purple spiral just opens up in the sky and just rotates for about 30 minutes. I just laid there watching it. Now, as a kid at that age, I didn't really make much of it. I didn't go into any theories or anything. To me, it was just, it was just a beautiful, strange phenomenon that kept me very open-minded. Uh, and so I, I had that experience and... Um, I continue to see things throughout my life. Even when I was in my 20s, I saw some similar things living in Toronto. I saw lights moving across the sky at impossible speeds, crisscrossing each other through the sky. Um, these were things that I saw. Now, you know, that doesn't assume extraterrestrials at all. These are just phenomena. But it did lead me in that direction. Um, and so I really started to study ufology. I wanted to know when I was older, I wanted to know more about what I was potentially seeing. Um, and so I ended up going down that rabbit hole and having even more experiences. There was a, a ufology conference I attended in uh, Colorado and uh, we saw blue, these blue lights materialize in and out around the power lines uh, as we were all outside um, sky watching together. So there have been a lot of experiences for me throughout the years. And um, because I was in this space, creating content and doing research, looking into this networking, I ended up getting invited to do some talks at some ufology conferences and to share some of my ideas about, you know, what's going on, how we need to proceed, what do we do with this material? Um, because it really brings to bear a lot of spiritual questions. I think that's where a lot of people end up is, is it brings you to contemplate things spiritually because it brings up big questions about our existence. Um, and so after having 
done some material, some conference material, uh, it was very impactful. It really struck a chord with a lot of people. And I got approached by some uh, gentlemen who were developing a streaming platform at the time. It was called Edge of Wonder. And they approached me and said, would you like to come and make a show for us? That ended up coinciding with eventually with the lockdowns and the sort of destruction of the theater industry in Toronto and uh, all the other work I was doing. So uh, at the same time, I was working as a personal support worker. Uh, I was doing mindfulness-based personal support work for people on the autistic spectrum. And uh, that was gone after the lockdowns hit. Uh, you know, it was just so much disappeared. And I ended up kind of being put in a position where developing online content uh, ended up being a major passion for me. It ended up being a need really in terms of creativity because I noticed that once I wasn't doing comedy theater and uh, of course there was no going to conferences and doing, doing anything like that at that time, I really needed to amp up my creative outlet through content creation. Um, and that also coincided with just me being censored, censored across social media. You know, I had been running a free thinking think tank on Facebook around that time, around uh, 2018, uh, around that time. And uh, it got to about 14,000 members. And it really challenged a lot of official narratives. And so it was not something that was appreciated in those spaces. And I got nuked on Facebook. I got shadow banned everywhere else. So I decided to adapt to my circumstances. I figured there's all this censorship, you know, there's what's going on in the world. I have this opportunity to share my research and my understandings and to get really good at content creation. So I decided to take about half a decade to just sell content to streaming platforms and to get really good at my craft. So I ended up over time developing a, a 4K film studio in my home and putting that together and uh, just refining my skills within the spaces of these private communities. So I was making content for Edge of Wonder, which eventually became Rise TV. So that's what it is today. Uh, developing content for a platform called Dauntless Dialogue, where I have a, a number of things there, but namely a, a six-part docuseries on the war on the family. Um, and so that's what I've been doing, uh, is working within these private communities, refining my craft, uh, you know, moving myself forward in, in being able to offer high-quality content that challenges a lot of what's going on and cut daughters of the west is my first fully independent release where i am no longer in one of these private streaming uh communities where i'm actually putting this out there all by myself putting it out to the world and starting to move things in a bit of a different direction and push past a lot of the censorship and build an, uh, a public presence a little bit more uh, and so that's sort of uh, I guess the journey that has brought me to where I'm at today. Um, and, uh, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm folks, I'm certainly going to get to this documentary. There's, there's, you've, you've hammered on like, not hammered. You've, you've mentioned like six things that I really want to talk to you about, but, uh, you know, I just got to go back to this UFO thing for one second. Mm. Okay. Cause mm -hmm. I, 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 I think for my audience, I'm looking off to the side, like I'm staring at them. I, I want you to recall, folks, that I don't know if we've really ever talked about this on the podcast. I, I, I'm trying to rack my brain if we've had a guest come on and talk about it. <clears throat> With the purple spiral, is there any chance it was Northern Lights? Or are you like, no, this was so different than Northern Lights? I don't think so, because I have, in the years since, I have found videos of other people seeing very, very similar things. So I eventually did find videos of people, I think it was in Russia, who filmed something and it's um it's about the size of the moon it's just like a very contained spiral that mm. is rotating uh 
I can't say I know what it is. Um, sure. You know, I, I, I do not know. I do not okay, know. Okay. Well, then, then, it didn't look then, like that to me. Then I, I got to tell you of an experience my wife and I had driving uh, Alberta here. Well, we were actually just into Saskatchewan, coming between Lashburn and Lloydminster for the audience member. We're driving towards Lloyd, so heading west. And I'm, I'm driving. I don't know why I was looking at the sky driving at night. And there were these two lights. They just, they almost seemed too bright to be stars. I don't, I don't know how better to explain it. They were, they were way up there. Anyways, I was like, what are those? Like, it almost looked like a planet. You know how, like, uh, I don't know, is it Venus or when, when it, it hits a certain point, it, it shines really bright and you're like, wow, that's a bright star. And then you realize, oh no, it's a planet. Right. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. There was these two side by side. And I'm like sitting there and I'm talking and my wife's going, Look, what does it matter? They're, they're stars or whatever. And I'm like, and I don't know what it is about me, Simon, and probably you and probably others, where you're just staring and you're like, like, what is that, though? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, I've, I've, how many times have I been driven this road and seen the sky and never seen that before? Like, is it a satellite? Like, what? what but it's not moving. It's, it's stationary. Like, it's not moving. And all of a sudden, one of them, the best way I can explain it is like in maybe, is it Star Trek or Star Wars, where all of a sudden they just, they just go, but straight ahead and disappear. Almost warp. like they warp. Yes. Yeah. That's the only way I can explain it. I know I sound a little bit bizarre right now, folks, but it's just like, boom, and it's gone. I'm like, holy crap, one of them just disappeared. My wife's like, what? And I'm like, did you just see that? It's gone. There was two. Look, there was two. And then the second one does it, and both of them, bang, bang. And I'm like, yep. dude, you, please tell me you just saw that. My wife's like, I don't know. And I'm like, why is it that I am curious about that? And my lovely wife, who is like the greatest woman on the planet, sitting right beside me, is staring at the same bloody thing happening. She's like, I don't know, maybe shooting star. And I'm like, shooting star? How How many? Am, am I lo Anyways, so I, I've never, I, I bring it up because I don't know if I've ever told anyone. And this only happened in like six months ago, maybe less. It was in the middle of winter. And I was just like, what was that? You know, and I didn't lose any sleep over it. Because yeah. I'm like, at the end of the day, it ain't going to do Sean any good to lose any sleep. But now I got a guy talking UFOs and I'm like, well, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot. I think one of the things to keep in mind, and this is something I realized from being in that space and researching, you know, in the ufology space for about a decade, uh, is that there there is a lot of uh, highly developed military technology that is classified, that is kept very, very covert, uh, that is likely making up a huge portion of these sightings. Uh, that's what seems to be happening. So I think... When you're looking at, uh, you know, craft that are moving at impossible speeds, impossible angles, there is a, quite a high chance that you're looking at, uh, you know, secret space program kind of materials where, you know, there's there's been kind of like a covert arms race in terms of technology going on between a lot of these highly developed militaries around the world. And apparently one of the most coveted things is like these high speed anti-gravity kind of craft that have been kept in these programs. There is a lot of witness testimony. There's a lot of interesting evidence, uh, you know, alluding to that fact. So I think that's one good place to start is that there's a really high chance that what you're seeing is a human craft. Um, I think if there are extraterrestrial craft, it's probably a very small percentage, but then again, it would only have to be like one craft for it to be an incredible thing. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, that, that I think is always an important thing to recognize. Uh, and you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of them and I've seen a lot of theories, you know, I've seen lights over Lake Ontario here in Toronto. This is a very common sighting actually is people see these big, bright, hovering orange balls over Lake Ontario. Um, this is very, very common. 
Um, now, in the sort of more conspiracy ufology space, there's people t um, who believe, based off of testimony from certain ex-military people, that there is a deep underground base uh, beneath Lake Ontario that is shared by Canada and America. And it said that this was a, a base that, you know, potentially during the Cold War that, that you know, the president might have been ushered to or something like that. Um, but there's continuously sightings. It's funny, actually, I, I made a 60-minute sketch comedy special called Theorize About Conspiracies. It's one of the things that I developed for Rise TV. And the special was essentially me going around different areas of Toronto, uh, talking about different sort of conspiratorial history and things that are connected to places in Toronto, and then going into sketch comedy and coming out, and I'd be in a different place in Toronto. So when it came to the end of the special, I was down by Lake Ontario talking about this these orange UFO sightings and some of the theories surrounding that. And as I was shooting the hosting section for that comedy special, a guy had been hanging out nearby. He heard me shooting the special, walked over and said, are you talking about the orange lights over Lake Ontario? You know, I stopped what I was doing and said, yes. He said, I just filmed one the other night from my balcony on Lake Ontario. And the guy showed it to me and it is brighter than the moon. So the guy airdropped it to me and I ended up putting it in a special because it was brand new footage of the exact thing I was talking about. It was amazing. Uh, there's just so many things in the world I don't even begin to understand. When you talk about military technology, it's like, go watch some... Um, you know, some of the things they declassify on, you know, on the Cold War. And you're like, holy crap, they had that back then? It's like, what do they have now? I, you know, so like, to me, I, I agree 100% with you. I, I just, the way the, the way that the two lights disappeared, to me, it was like they zoomed off as if they were warping. And I'm like, yeah. that was wild. Like, to me, I didn't, you know, do I think aliens right away? No, I just think like, do we have technology that can warp? Wouldn't that be something? Like, that's, that's, that's something. <laughs> I if mean, people want to go dying. down a, a crazy rabbit hole, they can look into the testimony of William Tompkins. William Tompkins. William Tompkins. That's right. So he worked for the Navy, and uh, he he alleged, that, you know, he wrote a whole book about this, that he was part of a think tank that was developing craft for deep space missions for the Navy. And he even has the blueprints, or had the blueprints. He included them in his book. He's passed away now. Um very, very old guy, but really very interesting man. And uh, he, he, you know, he, his story is about the fact that he was in this think tank within the sort of uh, the, the industries that develop weapons and, and, and shuttlecraft. You know, he was working within some of these industries blended with the military and the Navy, developing plans and craft and ideas for deep space missions. And he talks about this as, you know, something that was being developed decades ago uh so maybe maybe what you saw was related to his work i have no idea uh but i'm open to it certainly the ufo thing is is like you know i feel like we you could talk about it for a long time and if people want to go down the, the william tompkins rabbit hole he sounds like an interesting guy that's that's the the thing that uh, always gets me going but the the, the reason i i really wanted to talk to you is you got you got a documentary out that we've kind of talked about uh just glazed over and i watched it it was a tough watch and i it's not the filming or anything it's it's the the talk we can certainly talk about that six-part docuseries on the war and the family to me uh i'm really really interested in those top uh topics and uh, you know what leads you to that and then maybe you can explain to the audience what it's all about 
Well, you know, to segue, I, after being in that ufology space, it was very interesting information, but I really started to realize I wanted to focus up on material that I could very practically use to be of service. And, you know, I was struggling with that being in that space, even though it was interesting and I felt I was uncovering some things that were important. Uh, I wanted to go down, you know, some information paths that were more related to um, my daily life and what I was experiencing and how I could really translate that into service. And I had known about the war on the family for quite some time. Um, I had been studying that. It had come up in my research of just sort of occulted information and warfare against humanity. And so uh, I ended up really feeling passionate about that because I had a son, a very young son. I had just become a father and I felt there was a lot of disinformation about fathers. And I was looking at, you know, the way fathers were framed in our culture, the fact that they're they're looked at as sort of incapable buffoons and they're always in commercials bumbling and they're just kind of idiots a lot of the time. Uh, and I wanted to undo a lot of that. I didn't want to carry that into fatherhood. So I started looking into the science of fatherhood and what's really going on when a man becomes a father. And that became very inspiring for me in terms of creating this docuseries about the war and the family. So once I started to look more deeply into what seems to be this aggressive war on the idea of the traditional family unit, I found that there very much are operations that are targeting the father that are unique to targeting the father and operations that are targeting the mother and operations that are targeting the children and innocence. And in researching that for my docuseries, uh, what I found uh, as far as what was really targeting the children uh, was gender ideology. It very much came across to me from my study of warfare, which has been a, a topic I've been passionate about for a long, long time. Um, the, the first series I did actually for Edge of Wonder was about the metaphysics of warfare and, and, and the sort of purpose war has served for humanity spiritually. Um, so I've been studying warfare for a long time. And once I realized gender ideology came across as a warfare operation targeting the kids, uh, I went down that rabbit hole and ended up with way more research than I could include in the docuseries and ended up realizing that it was actually in many ways hurting girls more than boys and that for some reason, girls were much more susceptible to gender ideology. They were much more likely to uh, take that and to permanently change their bodies. And I ended up in that space. And the more I researched that issue, the more I realized that all of the rhetoric surrounding this debate about medically transitioning minors, uh, especially teenage girls, the more I realized that that debate was hyper-politicized in a way that was not helpful. And that if I was going to do anything to help with this topic, then I needed to um, explore this issue from beyond that left-wing, right-wing spectrum, because I knew that there were lots of left-wing people that were against it, and that it wasn't true that all left-wing people support it. And I also knew that it wasn't true that the best way to save girls from this is to just become more conservative, politically speaking. You know, I saw that to be kind of a nonsensical thing, and uh, I started digging more deeply into what is really going on with girls in the Western world, and what I found was this trend before gender ideology in which uh, there was an exponential increase in girls getting not just breast augmentations, but even more than that, labiaplasties, which is this cosmetic genital surgery. And finding out that more and more minors were getting their labia cut 
for cosmetic reasons before a huge explosion of girls started getting double mastectomies and testosterone injections, I started to realize that there has been this war on, on femininity and on, on the female form, on uh, womanhood that is very broad, that has been going on for many generations incrementally, and that the explosion in transgender girls was really just a symptom of this long-standing war and that there were cultural norms that led to the explosion in minor girls getting cosmetic genital surgery and that those cultural norms had to have played a huge role in allowing the explosion in transgender girls. When you talk about a war, who's... Who's the one attacking the family values in your mind? There seems to be, uh, you know, an elite group in the world that are interested in installing a new world, new world order. So there are some names that we can attribute to this agenda. We can see that Klaus Schwab very much wants to install a new world order. He's spoken about it. He's written about it. He has spoken about the fact that he has trained different leaders around the world and penetrated the cabinets of governments around the world. He cites Justin Trudeau as someone who is an example of that. Um, you know, there are leaders who have openly talked about the New World Order on a number of occasions. Joe Biden has. George Bush Sr. Uh, spoke about it a lot. Uh, Bill Clinton brought it up. Um, even Barack Obama. So we do have people who have been citing a new world order that is being developed on numerous occasions. Um, so you have some of those names. Um, I think you you also just have uh, bloodlines. You have families who have been working on this for many generations. This is one of the interesting things that I found is that uh, the war on the family, uh, as as is stated in certain documents. So one of the documents I focused very strongly uh, on in my docu-series was the work that preceded Cut, was a series of documents called the Toronto Protocols. Now this is allegedly two meetings that occurred in Toronto by a group of elite uh, financiers who called themselves the 666. And uh, these are meetings where they are describing their warfare strategy for implementing a new world order. Apparently, these meetings occurred in 1967 and then 1985, and they are talking about what they have done and what they are doing and what they are going to do to install a new world order, and they overtly state the fact that we will not be able to install this new world order unless we take down the traditional family unit, unless we destroy that idea and disrupt the stable family unit so that it does not continue generation to generation. The reason that's so important is because they also say on the flip side that the way they have been able to continue these plans is by maintaining stable family lines of knowledge so that for their families over many generations, a legacy can be continued. So the very thing they're trying to take away from us is the family unit's capacity to generate legacies, to, to take knowledge and to move it into the future by passing it through the generations. They state that they want to disrupt the family unit so that it can no longer become a container for human knowledge and wisdom and pass that on generation to generation. And what that means is that when generations are born without stable knowledge and wisdom being passed on from their family, then that generation 
is at the whims of government, media, and the education systems uh, to orient themselves in the world. And this is stated as uh, a necessary warfare uh, strategy for achieving this new world order. When you talk, uh, you know, about breaking up the family units, is that because, you know, family units are, are, I mean, a strong unit and they don't rely on somebody else to give them direction. They, they very much are a cohesive group of people. And I think that's, you know, we build up strong families, you know, you build up a strong community, et cetera. Uh, so when you when you take a step back from it, I feel like it's right out of the communism playbook where you, you destroy the family unit so that you rely on the government. Is that the theory then? Yes. So um, I definitely do see lots of communist warfare all around us, and this is pretty easy to track. Um, there are a lot of ways you could look at this to see the, the communist warfare going on. Yes, it is stated in the Communist Manifesto that the, the family unit is a, a form of oppression that needs to be done away with. Uh, so Karl Marx very openly talked about this in the Communist Manifesto. Um, this is something that is known to have gone on, um, you know, with communism in, in the Soviet, you know, Russia and all of that, that whole history, turning children against parents was very much a communist tactic. Um, if we go back to the Toronto Protocols, one of their meetings was called, it was entitled The Red Wave. And they called it this in reference to the massive installation of communist ideals they planned on bringing into the West to further these plans for the New World Order. So they see communism as an effective tool um, to achieve their goals. Um, and, you know, if people, people who go and actually watch Cut, if you rent or purchase Cut, one of the bonus features of doing that is you get access to a second film um, that I wrote, a friend of mine edited named Adam Riva, and it's called Vague Rules. And Vague Rules is a short film, about 35 minutes, uh, that shows people uh, communist warfare that is being waged in the West, and it connects what is going on here in the West to the history of communist China. And it shows the ways in which communists have traditionally used vague rules and vague laws to create specific social conditions to alter human, beha human behavior. And in vague rules, I tie that communist tactic to the implementation of critical race theory, gender ideology, and the response to COVID. And I, I show the ways in which this particular communist tactic was used in all three of those situations to give people a sense of this sort of tapestry of communist warfare that is woven throughout what's been going on in North America over the past you know, decade maybe a couple decades even. You know, when you rattle off all that, you go, if you're, if you're not paying attention, that's like a hard, that's like a, like you're, you're jumping like, I don't know, the Grand Canyon, you know? You're like, how do you make that jump to assume everything you just said is bingo? But if you got your eyes open, you just kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh. When, uh, when you look at the film you did on Cut, and you just bring it into one issue and, and following the trend on how girls are being very much impacted, targeted. Uh, have you found, um, what's the feedback been like, you know, to try and get to new audiences and expose them to some of the things you're seeing? People were really shocked uh, about the, the cosmetic surgery trends. And, it, you know, it was very eye-opening because I think while a lot of people are very passionate about this issue of how gender ideology is impacting youth, uh, I think a lot of people were caught up in this sort of uh, myopic, you know, tunnel vision debate about, uh, you know, a left-wing ideology harming all our kids. 
Uh, and once people saw some of the research that I brought into this film that brought it into this broader perspective and showed them, wait a minute, there are cultural norms that were installed a generation or two ago that it looks like they have been fueled to the fire of gender ideology. Um, you know, the, the response has been good because it's helped people expand their awareness of what we're really up against and what we need to be paying attention to. Uh, you know, it has, uh, it has connected me with people on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, I've had uh, women who are more fem feminist in their orientation, you know, despite the fact that um, a lot of feminism has been infiltrated, I think, to, uh, to be weaponized, frankly, against all of us, but against women very much. Um, but I have had some connections on the left that have been very interesting. You know, there's a woman that I got connected with on Twitter. Um, someone put the trailer for my film in one of her comments sections. And I ended up checking out her work. And she actually has been fighting against this labiaplasty craze for a couple decades now because she was medically injured by a labiaplasty when she was a teenager. And uh, she has been working hard to expose all of the disinformation essentially about women's anatomy that is leading to this, that it's not just a matter of cultural forces. So it's not just porn and it's not just... Uh, you know, trends in women's body imagery and, and uh, things like this that are leading to girls uh, changing their bodies with these permanent modifications. Um, it's also medical disinformation. And this is some of what's in my film too, that they're telling girls and women that they have what's called labia minora hypertrophy. And uh, they're essentially saying you have deformed oversized labia and you need them cut up anyways. Uh, they're, they're saying this to girls. So even after the girls go through the experience of seeing something on TikTok, let's say, like literally an ad for labiaplasty or a meme that shames a particular kind of looking labia. This is something that girls see as well. Um, they then go to the medical community and they find all this disinformation saying things like 50 to 60% of women have labia minora hypertrophy. So it was interesting connecting to Jessica Pinn's work because she has been fighting against this, but very much from a a left-wing feminist perspective. She's been embraced by the sort of left-wing media. She's been on The Daily Show, and I think she got covered by the New York Times. So you can see now, by bringing this broader picture into it, how there are there's now an invitation for both left-wing and right-wing people to get into this dialogue in terms of what is really happening to our daughters here, what is happening to the girls, the daughters of the West. Um, is it really a political issue, or do we need to throw that out and try to protect children without that polarization? Yeah, it's 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 interesting what you're talking about, you know, and I just bring it back to like, what can I do? And uh, uh, it's it comes back to protecting your, your family unit, I think. Right. Like how do yeah. girls get sucked into some of this? Some of the, I mean, some of, you know, like you talk about social media and the pressures of body imagery and, and different things like that. Porn's a huge one. I mean, like literally it's on every device we have. And you go as a as a family unit, you're going to have to have your eyes open open at all times um, moving forward in this interesting time we live in because of the ability to just access all this different stuff that, uh, you know, kids are going to soak up and think is like legit real world things, right? And yeah. as long as you have a, a healthy family unit, I feel like you can navigate some of these rough waters. Maybe I'm wrong on that a little bit. No, I, I honestly think having a strong family unit is a kind of warfare at this point. I mean, that is it is that important 
And I say that after having researched the war on the family for so long and researched this effort to install a new world order, it is central to what they're doing that the family unit falls. And so one of the ways to fight back is to have a stable family unit. But I think that is starting to look differently. It's not necessarily uh, about a return to the past, about a return to traditions. Um, even though we are trying to protect some older notions of a traditional family unit, there are also new ways we need to go about it. So I think a lot of the times, uh, you know, that you can look to in the past when the family was more uplifted, you know, sometimes through religion, let's say, um, there were times when religion was used to oppress the individuality of the child when they were, uh, you know, pressured into groupthink and pressured into thinking dogmatically. Um, and so while religion sometimes was the, um, the container for the ideal of the family unit, I think sometimes it really uh, stopped the development of free thinking children. And so in moving forward, while we want to protect the family unit, I think one of the things we want to focus on doing is having families that really honor the unique nature of the individual child and see that individual child for exactly who they are without enforcing upon them any kind of dogma that obscures who that child is. So, you know, we're an unschooling family and we're very much all about that, letting the uniqueness of our children guide their education. So it's about who they are and that informs how we guide and support them rather than taking a system, you know, a series of theories or a curricula and imposing it upon that child. And so in developing a stable family unit, I think parents have this chance to to progress things towards honoring the unique child uh, more than we have in the past so that they are capable of navigating the war that we live in because we live in a very sophisticated modern war. We live in what is called fifth generation warfare. This is a, a modern kind of warfare uh, that is designed specifically so that number one, um, groups and people are attacked uh, in a way that they cannot see the attack. And so they don't know they're being attacked. And so number two, they don't really know they're in a war. And number three, uh, they don't understand that they can become a weapon according to this sophisticated kind of warfare. So we need to be producing children that are free thinking enough and sovereign enough that they can navigate a war that is not going to go away. We are not living in a war that is going to end anytime soon. It is going to continue uh, you know, for a long time, in my opinion. Um, so th this family unit that I think we are evolving towards, it has to be about producing children that are capable of thriving in the specific conditions that we are now living in, in the modern world. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, in the middle of COVID, I'd always said, you know, and I always joked about the Chinese, but like, what would wake everybody up is tanks rolling down the street because it's just you you see it. It's such a visible here it is. When it's this fifth generation warfare that you 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 you, you know you discuss, it's like death by more than a thousand cuts because it's so imperceptible. You know, when you even start talking about it, if you don't know what you know, if you got a person that's, um, <laughs> I don't know what's the word they they haven't been exposed to it i guess like to see it from what it is yeah they they literally think you're t you're talking a different language you know like no nah, there's none of that in there you, you're going a little crazy you know you're one of those conspiracy nuts it's like no i don't i don't think so at all actually i'm i'm telling you like you know i i literally just gave a presentation there uh yesterday and 
uh, a few of the things I was talking about was the family unit and just like how impressed Jordan Peterson I was with Jordan Peterson on stage in Edmonton because he had his wife asking him questions. He danced on stage with her. And I'm like, what other leaders do we have that are showing what a healthy... And they talked about their struggles and different things. I'm like, what other leader do we have in Canada that like actually shows you what healthy marriage looks like even though you know at times it is difficult and you have your rocky patches and anyways I, I gave this this talk about how you know like somehow I've become a little bit of a, a like an outsider because I'm 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 bullheaded on the family unit it's like you need to protect that at all costs <laughs> this yes. ain't a fun life if you lose that no lose it's, that, it's gonna be yeah it's, it's gonna be a rough ride and yep. uh, you know and it's it's funny I I see a lot of uh religion specifically the bible in 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 my area and probably western civilization really coming to forefront because people myself included are just like looking at it it's like everything you thought you believed in doesn't seem to be like it's holding any weight you've just been you know hit by a tsunami wave of everything and the only thing that seems to hold any truth you know is is the new testament in my eyes right now that's what i'm reading and it's like this seems like something, I don't know, civilization might set its foundation on. Oh, wait, we did that? Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and yet that's become, they've attacked that as, you, well, you're going, you're becoming one of those extreme people. It's like, not really. I, I think uh, what I stand for and what we're talking about is probably something everybody would really like. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, like, people, they struggle with, I guess there's two sides of it people struggle with the the religious nature of of sure. what's going on to the extent that religion was used for so much harm right like a lot of people who are very much they'll immediately they'll be like well what about all the priests that abuse the children and what about like all these forms of corruption that infiltrated the church and all these things and so there's that aspect of it that i think pushed a lot of people away and made a lot of people skeptical but um we do need systems of meaning and, and, and spiritual guidance that uphold ideals. And this is like so much of what we are struggling with is about ideals. And the ideal of the family unit is probably the best example. And I think one of the ways that everything has been twisted is that um, a lot of the, the propaganda coming from these social justice movements, gender ideology, critical race theory, um, they, they take the concept of an ideal, specifically, let's say the ideal of the family unit, and they say that this ideal is being used for judgment and to, to be exclusionary. And, and it casts anyone out who doesn't fit into that ideal. And so we need to destroy this ideal to be more inclusive. Um, and this is a very, um, it, it's a very surreptitious trick, in my opinion, because ideals were never really forms of judgment and exclusion in the way that they are framing it. When you think about what an ideal is, it is a a form of sort of perfection, right? It's a form of like metaphysical perfection. It's a level of perfection that is not attainable, right? It, that's the whole point of it. It is a form of perfection that is meant to guide us um, like a compass, okay? So it's silly to say that ideals are used to, to just exclude people because technically everyone is excluded by ideals because no one ever achieves the ideal. That is the point. So anyone could measure their family unit up against an ideal and say, oh, I'm not quite achieving that ideal. But that doesn't mean that it's excluding you. 
It's simply a system for guiding the collective. And that's why the ideal of the family unit, of this traditional family unit, is important. It is a beacon, a guiding light for a civilization. And Christianity was the container for that ideal throughout so much of our history. And, and so there's that element of it where like it has to be understood that it played that very important role protecting this ideal of the family unit. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have or that we haven't always had people that stray from ideals and, and purposefully go against an ideal to experiment because humanity needs that as well. We do need to always have a small group of the population experimenting way outside of ideals and seeing what happens. That I think is totally natural. But I think we need to reframe our thinking on what the, the purpose of an ideal is. And as these large systems of centralized cultural production collapse, so these mainstream media systems that are collapsing and a decentralized system of media is coming up, right? Like, like this show and all the other like podcast people are starting and this sort of decentralization of cultural production is occurring. We need to respect what it means to start to build ideals that are meaningful and that will guide us accordingly. Um, and I think the other aspect to this uh, in terms of like religion is that even if someone is looking into all of this and they are not coming from a Christian perspective, it's still a fact of the matter that we are dealing with people who are some people who are devoutly satanic. There just is, there is a group that seems to be passionately satanic who wants to use satanic ideals to guide our culture very, very much. Um, and so people need to, I think sometimes step back from being triggered either in being like, everyone has to be Christian or being like, Christianity is corrupt and I don't need that. Like we need people who are currently practicing Christians and people who are not to come together and <laughs> to recognize that it's one enemy either way and whether or not you're coming from that place. Um, understanding uh, the satanic element to this for me is very edifying. You know, uh, it helped me comprehend even just from a very practical warfare perspective, what was going on. Because then I could start to see, oh, I see the cultural ideals that they're building to replace what would really serve us. And, uh, you know, to me, I, th I think that's important for people to understand that that just exists, whether you believe what these Satanists believe or not. When you talk about them trying to construct uh, their ideals or, you know, the Satanic ideals into society and that people need to understand that, can you just... Well, I don't know. Help me understand that. Just give me some more information on what you or expand on your thought, I guess, Simon. So there is there's the notion of inversion. OK, this is a very important concept. Uh, inverting God's creation is a very, uh, I guess, commonly understood satanic concept. Um, the idea, the essential idea that that uh, the natural design of things needs to be inverted as a, an affront to God. Right. So, uh, frankly, you can see a lot of this in the push to um, to change children's bodies to the opposite sex. Right. So sex changes of children is what we're looking at now. This is one of the battles that we're in. Right. That there are children who need to have their sex changed. Um, there is a reason why that symbolically uh, connects to, for example, the, the image of, of Baphomet, right? This is the, the goat-headed being that 
that has breasts. Uh, you, you have a lot of themes going on in our culture that are about this kind of inversion. Now, at the same time, you also just have overt Satanism being pushed on people, on children. So, um, you know, there's a number of good examples of this. The recent scandal with Balenciaga, right? You had uh, Balenciaga promoting the exploitation, the sexual exploitation of children. At the same time, um, you know, one of their campaigns had this caution tape where they changed the spelling of Balenciaga to have two A's so that it's ball. And ball is a reference to the Canaanite god of child sacrifice. Um, definitely something that can be connected to satanic ideology. Um, you have uh, Little Nas X. Okay, so Little Nas X, huge pop star who makes music initially that is being promoted to children. And literally he's going to events and he's doing his song for children and he's reading to children. So, you know, he gathers this following of children, right? So, you know, that children are following little Nas X and then all of a sudden he comes out with a video, a graphic video where he is descending into hell and giving Satan a lap dance, then puts out a line of shoes that are satanic that are alleged to have a drop of real human blood in them. So what happens to all those children who were following little Nas X when all of a sudden he's producing extreme satanic propaganda? How does that affect their worldview? How does that affect their ability to navigate culture? What kind of ideals does that give to them? Uh, you know, these, these kinds of messaging, this kind of satanic messaging is right there. It's right there in your face. Balenciaga was a huge event and I noticed a lot of pundits who uh, previously had said the idea of any kind of satanic uh, occulted agenda was silly, finally saying, oh my gosh, this is one of the biggest fashion brands in the world. And they actually are promoting pedophilia and Satanism in their campaigns and having to just confront that reality. Why? Why would uh, these brands, these big brands and all these big mainstream sources be promoting satanic ideals and investing so much money into promoting that at the same time uh, as we have what seems to be an overt war on the family. And I'll even say that um, in these Toronto protocols, uh, they state that it is the concept of the Judeo-Christian family that we need to deconstruct. These are their words. Um, so, you know, I think we need to be careful because uh, people can get really riled up and get very, very emotional when it comes to like satanic pedophilia, like those words put together, it very much triggers people into either, either they're passionate about it and they become overly emotional in trying to, uh, explain to people what may be going on or people are triggered against it. And they say, this is nonsense, satanic panic. This, these, have, these theories have all been debunked. Um, we have to have a very, calm, collected uh, state of being to be able to go through this information and discuss it because in fifth generation warfare, you know, this is something that is pretty well understood now. If, if you go and read, for example, there's a book called The Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare that was produced by um, General Michael Flynn and Boone Cutler. And one of the things they talk about is the ways in which emotionality avails us to the enemy, that emotionality avails us to psychological operations. And that if you are using your emotions to navigate 
what is going on in this war, then you will not be able to navigate it correctly and you will be more likely to be controlled. So the way I look at it is when you look at things like satanic agendas and those things that are very charged, you have to be able to wait for your emotional waves to subside before you decide you know, how you're going to proceed and what you feel might be going on. Um, we have to have a certain amount of mindfulness to navigate this material because it's very charged. Yeah, it's, uh, hmm. you know, you bring up a couple things that, you know, in passing you go, like, that's just really strange, you know? But it's it's kind of like the shooting star or, you know, the two the two stars in the sky, if you would, right? You see it and you go, like, how much does it impact my daily life, you know? Uh, it doesn't seem like that much. But over time, it feels like more and more we're being confronted with it, doesn't it? You know, there's an interview with Yuri Bezmenov. It's a 1984 yes. interview, right? Yep. This is probably one of the best descriptions of what's going on. He talked about this very overtly, that there's going to be this in incremental kind of warfare where communist tactics are going to be made up of an incremental kind of warfare that moves slowly generation by generation and that the goal is to make it so that by the third generation, there have been people, it has produced people who are so ideologically subverted that they cannot think critically. They don't have free thought. They are unable to see logic and facts because of this slow generation by generation ideological subversion. That is one of the things we all need to be aware of. It's a big focus of my work. Because we have to think generationally. This is another big reason why the family is so important. The family unit is the means by which we get information to the future. Uncorrupted information. Okay? You can no longer rely on uh, systems of information in terms of technology. At this point, that is not the best way to get information to future generations. The best way is to pass it on through the family. To use the family's capacity to gather you, knowledge. Right? Do you think... Uh, you're that thought right there. I've wondered if the um, I, lack of, I, I, I'm just going to say the elites of the world have known that for some time and have been really, really good at it. Yes. Whereas, you know, uh, so many of us that, you know, um, you know, like just, I, I think of my own heritage that they came across, you know, they left England, came to Canada and, you know, we've been here now for a hundred years, hundred plus years. And certainly, you know, there's some things distilled, but if we'd all been lack of better term, politicians, lawyers, doctors or something, maybe it would have been distilled, but you know, instead of all staying farmers, we've all broken into different, you know, like I don't have any predecessors who are podcasters. Not many of us do, obviously. Uh, but if I, if I, my son will be better equipped if he stayed in this realm and then his son again and again, because you'd start to learn these lessons and you could pass them down. I've always wondered if the elites have been very good at this. They state this overtly in the Toronto protocols. It's, it's one of the reasons I was so passionate about studying the war on the family. It really seems like what they they are taking from us is what they kept for themselves. So they they state that they have been working on this for hundreds of years and that they they are very much capable 
of passing a mission on from generation to generation so that the next generation takes these steps and this generation takes these steps so that they are able to have this covert kind of warfare that is unseen by most of the public who is thinking within, you know, uh, political cycles at best, four-year terms, right? <laughs> at best. Um, and so because the public is thinking in those terms and not thinking generations behind and generations ahead, as these, these elites are, then we are blind to what they are doing. And so one of the correct ways to go back at them, to fight back, is to begin to think this, this way. So not only are you thinking of your children now, what you want to pass on to your children, what information are you trying to get into the future to the set, that seventh generation, right? What legacy of knowledge, of wisdom, are you hoping you can get as far into the human future? So, what as what inf what information are you trying? Do you, Simon, want to get into the seventh? I mean, I want to promote a legacy of free thought. That if I can, if I can pass on this capacity for free thinking, um, so that they can be sovereign and use that free thought to develop an inner authority that guides them, so that they know how to make decisions that are correct for them you know, uniquely. And it doesn't mean that their system of inner authority is the same as mine, but it's the ability to be free thinking enough and to have the knowledge of self that, that works with your capacity for free thought, that you become a sovereign being. And I believe if a family can generate a legacy of free thinking and personal sovereignty over many generations, there is a form of intelligence that will escalate, that will exponentially grow within that family line. And those generations will be able to thrive as the conditions of our world continue to shift. And there's a lot of chaos on the horizon that is going to be difficult to navigate. So mine is a legacy of free thought, a legacy of inner authority and personal sovereignty. And, uh, you know, I seek to pass that on to my children. I have a, an eight-year-old son who I very much talk to about the war we're in, um, that there is a war that is very mental. And, what, and, how, does, and how, does it, how does an eight-year-old respond to that? It's interesting to him because he understands that there are attempts to get at his mind, to control his mind. And it's not a scary thing. You know, I, I, I work in the space of comedy, right? So a lot of what I've shown my kids has been making comedy about what's going on. You know, I, I had my, my 60 minute comedy special uh, theorized about conspiracies. But then after that, I made this six episode uh, sci-fi sketch comedy series called Simon Esler's Dystopian Imaginarium. And it was a, a comedy series where I was trapped in a deep underground military base with a gender neutral AI named Pamuel. And me and Pamuel were tumbling different timelines and finding out what's going on in this timeline compared to the original timeline. And this was all during COVID. Um, and so my sons saw me uh, make all these ridiculous characters and all these sort of exaggerated versions of what was going on in the world and laugh at it and stay open and free thinking about that and stay lighthearted about it so that it wasn't about a scary war that's coming for us. It was more about just situational awareness, understanding where and when you live in history so that you can live accordingly. And that is the most beautiful thing about studying and understanding modern warfare is that it fills you with purpose. It gives you a very clear sense of how you can be of service and how to develop yourself. That's very much how I ended up focusing on the war and the family and then subsequently making a film about protecting the daughters of the West 
um, because I see the warfare that is going on and I respond to it accordingly. I let it inform my point of service to humanity. So, you know, that's that's been very uplifting for me. You know, you mentioned you're writing a, a book, uh, Rites of Passage for Kids. Um, I, I, as a father of three, I, I find that very, very interesting. Um, care to share some some thoughts from yeah. it like wh what you're Absolutely. trying to accomplish or or maybe you know as a as a father sitting on this side some of the things you could just share with me that uh you know you've been thinking about and writing about so i'll start with the fact that i'm i'm certified as what's called a life cycle celebrant um i studied a the... life cycle celebrant that's right yes so if okay. you, you, can, you can look up the celebrant foundation and institute it's a school that i attended and I studied the history and art of, of ritual and ceremony creation and, and what role that has played throughout human history. And so I became certified in the art of custom ceremony creation. Um, and so it's something that I'm very passionate about and very knowledgeable about. And because I had that understanding, uh, you know, I was able to see, number one, areas in our society where ritual and ceremony are very much lacking. But number two, seeing areas where uh, ceremony and ritual may still be going on, but have lost meaning, have become kind of hollow and repetitive and sort of doing them for, for their own sake. You know, I worked as a minister for many years. I was ordained as a, as a minister here in Ontario, and I was doing custom wedding ceremonies, and they were very, very customized. So I would get the couple to fill out a questionnaire that gave me their story and very much about who they were as individuals and then who they were when they came together and the story of their relationship developing. And I would take their answers, um, what each couple, uh, what each member of that couple had written. And then I would use their answers to develop a totally unique custom wedding ceremony that was born out of their story and their relationship. And every time I did it, people's minds would be blown because they were so ready for wedding, a wedding ceremony to be boring and <laughs> boring. repetitive and just <laughs> shitty. You know, like people's expectations are so low. So when they experienced a ceremony that was filled with actual meaningful rituals that reflected their friends correctly and their story and told their story, people were so elated and uplifted. And um, so I learned a lot in doing that. And, and in studying specifically rites of passage, because that's what a wedding ceremony is. It is a rite of passage. Now, rites of passage are ancient. Humans have always used some form of rite of passage, right? This is all throughout human history. And so we have basic elements to the rite of passage that we know are always there. The rite of passage essentially always uses the hero's journey archetype. So you have this archetype of, uh, you know, something strange is going on in the familiar world or, or you're pulled out of your familiar world into a new place. And then you move into this new and strange place that starts to uh, it starts to change you and you start to feel like you need to change. And there's the opportunity to transform yourself and you take on a, a new form based on your experiences in this very new place. And then you take that new status and that new knowledge and you bring it back to the world of the familiar and you share with your community and your family what you've gathered in that space of the unknown of the new. That is the essential structure of a rite of passage ceremony. And so I'll point something out that was very clarifying for me in doing this research for Cut was that 
you have an adolescent girl and she's struggling, you know, with the pain of, of, of female adolescence. It's very difficult, right? Their bodies are changing. They're coming into the magnitude of continuing the human species of, you know, being the matrix for the human species of fertility and the ability to bear children. They are coming into uh, becoming objects of sexual desire and cultural symbols of sexuality. There is a lot there for them to navigate. So you have these adolescent girls who are struggling with this and uh, they're pulled into this new space, right? They're pulled into this very unknown space. It's no longer the familiarity of childhood and they're in this instability and they're, they're not feeling supported. And some of them are looking at our cultural uh, views on, on women and femininity and feminist freedom. And a lot of that is being promoted as this hypersexual way of living and being. And so they're looking at that and they're saying, that doesn't feel right. And, you know, there's a lot out there that's saying, you don't need to be a mother. There's not a, nothing really that great about motherhood. You could just be free and go and build your career. And so there's a lot of messaging going on that's very strange for them. So some of these girls decide to, to reject the ideals of womanhood that they're given. And it is at this time that they are offered gender ideology. And they're told, hey, you really don't, you don't feel like you're a woman, do you? You don't feel like you want to go down that path? I think that might mean that you're actually a boy inside, that you really want to become a man. And so they are given, when they're in this space, they are given rituals, right? They are given very meaningful rituals. They are given a new name. They are given new pronouns. They are given a chance to actually physically change their form, right? They can get the double mastectomy or the puberty blockers or the testosterone injections. They change their form. They take on this new form and then they come back into their community. And what happens, especially in social media, is all these, their gender ideologue friends are all like, you're so beautiful. You're so brave. You did it. This is the new you. They have their new status. All of that, that transition that's going on with gender ideology, it mimics a rite of passage to a T. So, of course, it is impactful for these girls at this time in their lives when they need it. So this is informing what I'm doing with this book. I am developing a book that uses the hero's journey structure to help parents build rites of passage for their children that can give them these psychological and cultural containers that I know they need because I really truly believe that's one of the reasons gender ideology took off is because there is an absence of that. Yeah. There isn't meaningful rites of passage being given to our youth so they can understand what it really means to move towards adulthood. Well, I, I, I don't have to even look at kids. Like To me, it, it, per, first, it makes sense. It makes complete sense. But you look at adults, like it, we're devoid of... Not, purpose meaning like we we found it in a whole bunch of different things and i you know i come back to what i said early on like the bible just holds a lot of it there it you know it, it really clears up a whole bunch of things for you but you got to read it you got to look into it you know and uh not to say that i have all the answers folks we all know i do not um but like you know we're we're, we're a society that uh has kind of you know you think you're you've got every everything by the tail and then you kind of realize you're Wiley e. Coyote running off the cliff, and you're just kind of sitting there going, "Oh crap! Right, we got a hard fall coming." And that's a that's a real big, you know, you know, like we need meaning in our lives. And when you realize, you know, whatever point in time in your life that, uh, you know, you're like, "Oh crap! Like, what am I doing?" You know, that's a very uncomfortable uh, feeling, honestly. 
Yeah, yeah. There is a lack of this, I think, not just for kids, you're right, for, for adults as well. Uh, I know that I wasn't giving any meaningful rites of passage growing up. Um, I'm sure that's something that would have helped me immensely. Um, but I think generally there is an absence of, of ceremony and ritual in our lives. Again, I think part of that is is this reaction that people had to the corruption of religion. So a lot of people that turned away from religion, they then also ditched all ceremony and all ritual. Yeah. And that is a huge, a huge mistake. Oh, it's huge. no, it's not a huge law. It's a huge mistake, right? Yeah. When you come back to religion and you talk about, um, you talk about like, Oh, but look at like, we just talked about this. There was just a headline in France, how they're going to give all the, the, the priests there, 16,000 of them, QR codes, okay, so that they can they can monitor them and so that you can scan them and see how bad they've been, because they've been really bad and they've been because there's been three hundred and thirty thousand children over seventy years molested by priests, and I go, why would you give them a QR code? Why wouldn't you boot them out? Like just yeah. no more, make it black and white. Anyways, side note, people go, well, there's nothing there for me anymore. It's just a bunch of grown men molesting kids. It's like, no, human beings have fucked it up a hundred percent. But what is the meaning of what has been the foundation of societies? It's yes. like, uh, there's a lot there, folks, and we can't just walk away from it all. We can certainly walk away from the pedophile priest. Yeah, I get it. Like, But there's meaning in the book that is there, and it has created, or at least has been a, the foundation for what it, we are standing upon here. And so precariously, like, Honestly, I, I I don't know when you when you when you come all the way back to the satanic stuff, which is like hard for me to wrap my head around. Except it's like if I take a step back and just look both ways, you kind of see what's going on, and you you kind of break down what's going on with kids and the transgenderism and the pronouns and the sex changes and how we're talking about mature minors and how you can take things that are gonna like we are going insane. It is upside down. It is the inverted. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. You know, we have a chance right now to let all of this inform us very deeply, as I said earlier, you know, to really study this war means to refine your capacity to be of service. You know, that's what we have uh, to our advantage. And when I talk about the promotion of free thought, you know, I think it's important to define that a little more clearly. Sure. So you know, free thought, the best definition I found is uh, the, the capacity to produce thoughts using logic, reason and empiricism. And so I'll just focus there a moment on empiricism because empiricism is the, the philosophy that the truth is, is most uh, clearly accessed through the body, through experiencing things in your physical life with your physical vehicle, as opposed to, you know, truths that can be uncovered through um, the, the, the mind, right? So I'll just emphasize that th this capacity to produce thoughts using logic, reason, and empiricism without the influence of dogma, so, authority, and tradition. Apologies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My phone beeped at me, and it changed my, my brain from listening to you for just one <laughs> quick second. And I missed, I feel like, a really interesting point you're, or, or thought you were having. Sure. You said, we think we experience something through the body. What were you talking about? Okay, so the, it's the idea that truth is accessed through the body primarily, that our senses and our experiences, our embodied experience of life is our most direct way of accessing truth. That's really what empiricism means. So it's at the heart of free thought, right? There's a certain amount of embodiment that is necessary 
for free thinking. So this capacity to, to understand reality and the self using logic, reason, and empiricism without relying on dogma, authority, and tradition. And it is in that space that we are producing free thoughts. Now, it doesn't mean we never use dogma or authority or tradition. It doesn't mean those are irrelevant tools in our lives, but we have to be able to produce thoughts and to experience truth outside of those influences to be able to think freely. Now, this is important, I think, you know, as you stated earlier, there are a lot of people who are um, who are turning towards the Bible or who are coming back to this Christian perspective. And I think what what there's a new opportunity here because it's the ability to combine the study of something like Christianity with free thought and the ability to be a free-thinking Christian or a free-thinking Jewish person. Whatever someone is following, there has to be this inclusion of free thought. The reason I emphasize the empiricism piece so strongly is because there is so much going on in our world and in this fifth generation war that is about disembodying us, right? So all the screen time, right? All the technology, the social media, I believe that social media is in and of itself a kind of disembodiment ritual because it is, is perpetually taking you outside of yourself. It is constantly getting you to be motivated by extrinsic forces, right? Trying to get likes on this platform, trying to get shares, trying to get comments. This is a form of disembodying us, of taking us into this instead of in, in the body itself. But then you add to that in terms of the struggle that teenagers, especially teenage girls are having, the fact that gender ideology is this kind of disembodiment ritual. As I said earlier, it mimics this rite of passage that is very much about disembodying the girls, taking them away from their sense of their body and saying that you can just, you can cut your body up. It doesn't matter. Your, your body can be changed. You're someone else inside. Um, this is why the empiricism piece is so important because there has to be aspects of our life where we are staying embodied, where we are literally making sure that we are in our bodies, that our nervous systems are regulated, that we are not being pulled outside of ourselves. You know, I notice sometimes when my kids play too much video games, you know, if my son's been on video games or screen time for too long, one of the things I'll do is I'll like squeeze him really, really, really hard and like really activate his nervous system and really stimulate him in his body and like re-embody him because I know that this is what screens do and what this kind of technology does because it does it to me. So, you know, that that to me is at the heart of free thought. So I think if we're push, fighting for anything, Free thought is one of the clearest things we can be fighting for because that is something that can connect all of us across different religions and belief systems. It's something that's very clear and accessible. And so it's why earlier I was saying that this is, you know, part of the legacy I want to pass on into the future of my bloodline. You know, man, this has been, um, you never, like, you know, we've had a couple, like, I'm just tired of technical difficulties. I, I, the audience will get it. They've, they, you know, certainly, um, you know, if I could put into the stratosphere of what I would like, what I would like is to have a studio set up where everybody comes. You know, the initial thought, Simon, was I was never going to do a podcast, not in person. And then COVID hit and you had a real choice to make. It was like, well, do you want to keep the podcast going or do you, you know, and certainly it's opened up the ability to have people like Simon Esler on, right? That to me. But, you know, in theory... If I could ever get this sucker to the point where I could just fly Simon Esler in, right, and sit across and have this discussion, I'm like, this is, I'm, once again, I'm going to have to go back and edit some of this because we've had, you know, whatever it is with Sean's internet, we're going to find out. I tell you what, Sean's getting off here and he's going to be making a phone call to the old internet company saying, what the heck? <laughs> 
you know, it's funny. You pay all this money and then and then it doesn't want to work for you. It's like, uh, excuse me. Anyways, but as I listen, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this because this has been really, you know, this is the beauty of a podcast. I get to sit down with anywhere between three to five people each week that's got their own perspective. And half the time I've never met them before. And certainly, Sam, me and you don't know each other from a hole in the uh, wall. After an hour and a bit, you know, you kind of get a feel for one another. But it's like, this has been very thought-provoking. And I'm starting to run into more and more people who are, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, relatively similar age who place a high value on the family unit is becoming something that I'm running into more and more and more, which I find very intriguing. And I just think that needs to be pushed into the stratosphere more than anything, right? That that this idea isn't, uh, you know, this inclusive jargon that just seems to go on and on and on it's like no how about how about we just set some boundaries here and we need the family unit to survive like immediately and it needs to get pushed to the forefront immediately and uh well i just appreciate you hopping on and doing this because uh i didn't know what i was getting this morning and certainly we've we've got on the whole gambit haven't we ufos all the way to (laughs) rites of passages just for kids and everything else you know it's I, I was thinking in my head, you would not be a dull guy at a cocktail party. You know, you could sit there and just have a, a sarsaparilla and it would be an interesting, interesting conversation any which way you wanted to go. I have had a very winding path. I've I've had so many, such a range of experiences that it's it has informed my, uh, yeah, my ability to converse across a lot of subjects because I think, you know, there's a book I read called Range. Uh and it's a book about the fact that uh, human beings are more intelligent when they lead these very winding lives and have a range of experience and a range of educational influences. And this book is antithetical to the idea of the career track mentality, where like you go to the right school, then you get on that career track and you go all the way to the top. And he was very much pushing back against this idea. And I just, I loved that book so much because it really helped me uh, appreciate the very winding life path that I've led and how beneficial that has been for me. And on the flip side, it's helped me really understand that there is the opposite. There are people who have, they have gone down down such narrow life paths that they are entrenched. Their thinking is entrenched. They're a little bit trapped. There's actually a phenomenon called cognitive entrenchment. And this is something that occurs when people become so hyper-specialized in a particular field of thinking and knowledge that they actually start to lose intelligence and struggle to think outside of their field. Uh, And so I think, you know, we all need to focus on trying to broaden the range of experiences and sources that inform us. And I, you know, I work very hard to try to keep that going in my life because it's so, it's just so expansive and so freeing. And fun, you know, (laughs) like honestly, uh, one of the things, you know, short little quick story on the podcast, I haven't talked about this for a while, but when I was first deciding on a name for it, you know, like one of the ones that I remember was grassroots hockey. Uh, This will make, you know, I I played hockey all my life. And for the first almost 200 episodes, all I talked to was pretty much NHL hockey players or, you know, kind of the the sports athlete kind of background story. And then COVID hit and certainly we've had our turn and now it's led me to Simon Esler. That's, that's basically how, you know, the, the story goes, but like the amount of fun that comes from talking to different people especially when when you agree on things it's 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 unreal but even if you disagree on things 
It's yeah. always interesting to see how their brain works. And if you can just pull your emotion out of it just for a little bit and just be like curious to see how they're viewing things, uh, it doesn't uh, limit your knowledge base. It actually expands it. And I would say one of the biggest fears of social media that I even have is I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that think like me. And the algorithm wants it that way because then you interact with it more. And we know this. And I know this. And I hate it. I mean, I love it and I hate it. You know, it's like... I know what you're doing. I see it. I'm turning you off now. I'm going to move on because, like, what a what a contraption. It's a conundrum because, uh, you know, uh, you speak to your movie. You know, you want to get it out there. You need social media presence to push it because that's the, you know, the easiest way to expand your your reach in the world. And yet the danger of doing that is you lose yourself somewhere in there or you narrow your field of thinking so much to the people that just surround you. Yeah, it very much is like that phenomenon of cognitive entrenchment that social media is definitely designed to entrench us within these echo chambers. And you have to be very, very aware of that. And and I think one of the sneakiest things that it does is it, it causes us to feel like we're making an impact in this war when we're actually just a whole bunch of people agreeing with each other. We're not actually making a real world impact. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in, in fifth generation warfare, they talk about um, dominating your physical domain that because so much of this war requires the digital domain, uh, there's so much, uh, there, you know, disinformation, there's so many psychological operations you know, there's so much going on that relies on the manipulation of the online space in the digital domain that to dominate your physical domain, that is your family, your community, to be in person with people, to be building relationships and networks and things that don't rely on the internet at all, is one of the ways to cut through this warfare because you cannot be manipulated by a lot of these campaigns when you're just in a room talking to someone. You don't have this device and this series of algorithms and all this disinformation between you, it's you and another person in a space. And it, it has, we've come to the point in this war where you have to find a way to dominate your physical domain so that you are free of as many of those influences as possible. And, you know, that's, a, I think, a big thing for people to understand, you know, recognize that you're definitely in an echo chamber because it's designed for that. And it has its uses because networking is great, but you have to try to find a way to break out of that. And, uh, it's probably going to be uncomfortable. Uh, it's not going to be as comfortable as everyone liking what you're saying. <laughs> no kidding. Well, here, as we wrap up, I'll, I'll give you the, the final question uh, brought to you by Crude Master. It's, if you're going to stand behind a cause, stand behind it absolutely. What's one thing Simon stands behind? Definitely the, the, the family, the family, the idea of the family. I mean, we've been talking about it right here this whole time. I think standing up for the family, specifically protecting the the state of our culture and the stability the family offers as far as children go and innocence. And I'll say this is especially important for people who do not have kids to understand that we have to protect innocence and we have to protect children. And so there needs to be participation from everyone in protecting this. You know, it shouldn't just be, you know, I don't, I have two sons. I don't have a daughter, but I made a film called daughters of the West. Cause I, damn well saw what was going on and he was correct in my you know my sense of the world and what was going on to stand up for the daughters of the west if only people who have daughters are going to stand up for daughters we're screwed if only people that have kids stand up for the kids we're screwed so stand up for the family stand up for the children regardless of who you are and where you're at in your life because it's about ge the generations to come 
Well, I appreciate you uh, you hopping on, giving me some time this morning, uh, dealing with a couple of technical errors as we seem to, you know, I don't need to point it out six times, but uh, it just seems <laughs> to, you know, it, it's always interesting uh, when, when things go smoothly or when they want to, you know, buck the trend. But either way, I appreciate you uh, hopping on, Simon. I, I, I promise this will not be the last time we chat because I've really enjoyed the hour and change uh, and, and talking about some different things that are near and dear to my heart. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And I think if uh, you know if people want to check out my film, absolutely. I'd love to get their yeah. Feedback. Uh, um, w- yeah. Could we? Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to send me the links. I'll put the links in the show notes if people want to yeah. go check out your film. I assume that would work uh, the easiest. Yeah, yeah. Just go to daughtersofthewestfilm.com. And oh, and I should mention actually, this is important. Sure. That in addition to going to daughtersofthewestfilm.com to see the film, I also have a resources section there. That is all practical services for families struggling with the impacts of gender ideology, because I really want this to be about providing practical solutions. You know, I know the documentary is very hard hitting, but it is surrounded by, uh, you know, action that can be taken. There's the the groups that I worked with to make the film, but there's also a resources section at daughtersofthewestfilm.com that is access to therapists and access to legal resources. There's networks of parents who are struggling with their children trying to transition and transitioning or have transitioned. There's resources to help keep your kids off of smartphones and social media until the correct age, which is like after grade eight. Um, so there's all sorts of resources there. So I really encourage people to go to the site. And if you need the resources or if you know people that need those resources, a lot of that stuff is very censored and hard to find. And so I'm going to continue to build that library to give people practical resources to, to protect their families from this influence. Appreciate that, Simon, and uh, I'll make sure once again to put it in the show notes that way if anyone's listening and, you know, is wanting to get more information or go uh, see your documentary, um, they can just click on the link and away they go and that'll be in the show notes. Right on. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Simon, once again. Uh, Simon Esler, uh, documentary filmmaker, comedian, holy man, that was uh, UFO, ufology. <laughs> Did not see that one coming, folks. I'm not going to lie. That was a, that caught me, uh, well, right in the sweet spot of podcasting, I'm going to be honest. I was excited for that. Um, this show is brought to you by uh, CalRock uh, Industries here in Lloydminster, calrock.ca. You can find out uh, all about them with new, used, and refurbished oil and gas equipment in stock. CalRock is your best when it comes to finding equipment that fits your needs and is within your budget and is ready as soon as you need it. They can manufacture tanks and other equipment for your specific applications. Once again, calrock.ca. I want to remind folks that uh, SMP presents uh, Luongo and Craner June 10th. Uh, if you're uh, so inclined to grab some tickets in the show notes, that is there as well. That's coming up real, real fast. And uh, we look forward to, uh, well, we'll see where the podcast here is uh, in a couple days. But either way, we'll catch up to you then. Thanks for hopping in today.